Well, good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them? We're going to be in John today. And while you're getting there, there was a show that came out several years ago. I'm thinking four or five years. It was called Undercover Boss. Familiar? Anyone? A couple of reality TV fans. Uh, this show, the premise of this show was intriguing to me. What they did is they took the boss or the president, the CEO, the top level guy of a prominent company, and they would take him out of his office for two weeks. And he would leave his office and he would come to the bottom of the organizational food chain. Okay, he would be at the entry of entry level positions, the lowest level that his company could offer. And during that two weeks, he concealed his identity. So no one knew who he was. They fed the company a story as to why video cameras would be following him and documenting. Uh, so buy it if you want, reality television. You, you're never sure how real that is. But the premise was interesting, and there was a moment in that show. It's really the climax of the show where the boss would reveal his identity. And it was that moment when you realize that the guy that's been cleaning the toilets is the president, and you realize, no, 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 I should be doing that, right? It's that awkward, crazy moment. Well, if you take that moment that we love to watch on television, and you multiply that moment infinitely, you get a small glimpse of the moment that we're going to be talking about this morning, the moment when God stepped in to humanity, creator steps into creation. And that's why I believe that the most powerful idea in all of humanity can be expressed in two very short words. God came. God came. This morning, we're going to do our best to look at the scriptures to see why, what they say about this, but also why it matters to us so deeply. All right, you ready? Let's open to John. We're going to be in the first chapter of John in the 14th verse. And let me read it for us. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word became flesh. The word here is, is what John uses to describe God, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. Uh, he uses it often, especially in this first chapter. He opens his letter with it. He develops this idea of Jesus as the word all throughout it. He starts by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That the word is then eternal. It goes down and it says that the word is God, that the, all things were created through the word as you go down. That the word is the source of life, that the word is the source of light. In verse 12, you see that through the word that we're given the right to become children of God. And then it brings us to a climax in our verse when it said, the word became flesh, became human. The word we have for this uh, theological word you've probably heard of, incarnation. That means literally the taking on of flesh, where God himself took on flesh. And so John says that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a powerful imagery. And some of your translations might have this a little differently. Maybe your translation uses the word tabernacle or took residence. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
Maybe your translation, other translations have, the word became flesh and took residence with us. Let's unpack what's going on here. There's a translation, it's a paraphrased translation by Eugene Peterson in his, in his translation that he calls the, the Message Bible. I want to read to you how he translates this because I think it is dead on. It says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that? Moved into the neighborhood. Here's the idea, and I think he nails it. Jesus was not on a short-term mission trip to earth. Instead, he changed his address. That he stepped in, fully committed, fully invested, and stepped into humanity. That he changed his citizenship to be one of us. And that's the idea, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That he moved into the neighborhood, our neighborhood, that God came. He moves on and he says, and we have seen the glory, glory as the only son from the Father. We have seen the glory. This is John writing this, who is one of Jesus' closest friends on the planet. One of his closest friends. He ate with him, he lived with him, he walked with him, he talked with him, he knew him intimately. And that man who knew Jesus that well says, I've seen his glory. How many have friends that would say that about you? No? No? He says, I've seen his glory. Especially not my closest friends, right? In John 20, uh, this, John is described as the beloved disciple, the one who Jesus loved. He knew him better than anyone on the planet. Candace probably knows me better than anyone on the planet. She's my closest friend, and I have not heard her use this language to describe me. <laughs> says this, but John says, we have seen his glory. And I want to pause here just a moment, because I think this is one of the most overlooked and powerful evidences we have that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Because the men, the women, the eyewitnesses that knew him best proclaimed it boldly that he was exactly who he said he was. In, in fact, they gave their lives saying it. I think of men like Peter. Peter who could not find the courage within him to even associate himself with Jesus. That same man who denied Jesus after he witnessed Jesus do his work on the cross, that same man became so bold that the church was built on him that he eventually gave his life proclaiming the news of Jesus. We read that he was crucified eventually upside down for this. That man who couldn't find the courage gave his life. I think of John. John got off easy, the writer of our letter. Uh, he was captured by Rome. They took him in and they boiled him alive in oil. He didn't die. And so they said, you know what we, we should do? We should just send him out, exile him to an island. He got off easy. He spent the remainder of his life boiled on the island of Patmos. These men gave their lives for this message. I think of his family. Men like James and Jude. Brothers. How many have siblings? All right, keep your hands up. I want you to keep your hands up if you would say this about your sibling. Perfect. We've seen his glory. No, I wouldn't either. His very family gave their lives for his message. They knew their brother. They knew their big brother. 
They saw him behind the scenes, and yet they said, I'll give my life for this. He was who he said he was. John says, we've seen the glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, the only son that there's an exclusivity to Jesus, that it's not Jesus and Buddha, it's not Jesus and Muhammad, it's not Jesus and Caesar, it's Jesus only. We have seen his glory, the only son. There's an exclusivity to him. And then he finishes, and I don't want us to run past this too quickly. It says, full of grace and truth. If there are ever two things that are hard to balance, it's those things, am I right? Grace and truth. On the one hand, we have some of us who excel at the giving of grace. It's easy for us. We extend grace. We, we don't want to upset. We want to make peace. We want to give grace. We understand. But often, that comes at the expense of the truth. On the other side, we have those who excel at telling the truth. We never have to wonder what you think. Never. We never have to wonder what's right or what's wrong because you will tell us. But often that comes at the expense of grace. And John says here, Jesus was the perfect balance of these two, full of both grace and truth, perfection, that he does what we struggle to do, and that's to hold these seemingly opposite things in perfect balance, that he was who he said he was. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, that God came. Now, I want us to shift gears because I don't think we've touched on something that uh, I have seen in my community. I don't think we've answered the question that I hear my community, that I hear the people in my neighborhood asking. The question I hear more than anything is this, so what? So what? Why does it matter? Why does any of this matter? What difference does it make to my life? I am going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do my best at my job. I'm doing my best with my family, trying to make ends meet. I'm raising kids that are crazy and I'm doing all of this stuff. And what difference does this doctrine have on any of that? That's the question that I feel like we need to spend the rest of our time with. Why does this doctrine make any difference? How does it make any difference in our lives? I started off by saying that the most powerful idea in human history is expressed in two words, and that God came, right? I want to give us three big reasons why I believe this is the case. And these, here is why these two words have really changed humanity, that these two words have changed everything. Let's start here. Number one, because he came, you are given the right to be adopted. Because he came, you are given the right to be adopted. I referenced this verse just a few short verses before verse 14 where we've been in in verse 12. It says this, But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus the word, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. During our adoption process, 
I, really, I found something. You never know what you don't know, right? We started this process, and I found something that just, to be honest, it broke my heart. Not every child, not every orphan has the right to be adopted. Not every child who is without a home has the right for a family to bring them into theirs. Some children are unadoptable. This breaks my heart because I I always assume that if there is an orphan in need and there's a family who wants them, that this should be a no-brainer. But it's not. It's not. Some because of legal reasons, some because of governmental reasons, Things. Some because of family issues, there's a lot of issues that could be happening. But not every child is adoptable. No matter how hard a family fights, there's nothing they can do because that child doesn't have the right to be adopted. Church, the Bible describes our condition like that. That we are unadoptable. But God came. But God came, he stepped in to our mess, and he gave us the right to become a son, a daughter of God. It's because God came. We were lost in our sin. We wanted nothing to do with God. And God, knowing that, in Romans said that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love by dying for us. That he gave us the right to be a son and a daughter of God. And this makes a profound difference. Here's why. It changes our identity. It changes our identity completely. From orphan to son. From orphan to daughter. And along with that comes all of the benefits of being a son and being a daughter of God. We get to know and enjoy the love of our Father. We get an inheritance that no one can take away. It's because God came. It's because God came. This has changed everything. I'll speak personally. This has changed my life. Set my life on a completely different path, and it is because God came, giving us the right to be a child of God. Number two, because he came, you are given sympathy in your weakness. Because he came, you are are given sympathy in your weakness. How many have ever worked for a boss that you felt like just completely could not relate in any way to the rest of humanity. It seems like they've been doing it for too long that they lived in a different world. You would bring up stuff you're going through in your family and there's just like nothing, no connection. Have you been there? Let me ask a more personal question for me. How many have had a pastor who you feel like you just cannot, there's nothing in common. It's like we don't live on the same planet. My experiences are not theirs. There's just nothing. You go to them and you, you say, I have this 16-year-old that's, I don't know what to do. And you get a response. It's like, take joy, my brother. <laughs> you've, you've heard this. 
plead the blood of the lamb or something like that. And you sit there and you're like, well, thank you for that. Doesn't help me at all, but thank you for that. I want to, first of all, if that's been your experience, I want to apologize. That is, that is ridiculous. And second, I want to assure you that Jesus is nothing like that. That Jesus is nothing like that. Although he had every right to be like that, he's not like that because he came. Because he came. We, uh, we read in Hebrews uh, 4, 15 through 16. You don't have to, to turn there if you don't want. I'll have it on the screen. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He was tempted like you. He experienced humanity like you. He endured pain like you. He endured sickness and loss. He experienced what it was like to have someone close to him betray him. He walked this out. He, the, the Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He walked this out, and because of that, he sympathizes with you in your time of weakness. Find the comfort in this, that we stand here, that God the Father's here, and we have a mediator who stands between us named Jesus, who knows what it's like who sympathizes with us in our weakness and who makes that relationship right. That's the picture that we get. And listen to this. Jesus, who had every right to look down on you, chose instead to come down to you. He had every right to just look down on you from where he was, but instead, he chose to come down to you. And that makes a profound difference because we don't serve a God who stands back far away removed looking at us and hoping for the best, hoping that one day they're going to get their act together. We don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who came. And even though he had every right to stay right where he was, he chose instead to humble himself and step in to become human, to take on flesh. If you're struggling with something today, if you're struggling with a weakness, if you are under the weight of a temptation that, if we were honest, has been beating us down for years, if you are here and you're struggling with all of the things that life does with us, we stand in confidence that when we come to the throne, that we will receive Grace and mercy and help and help. Uh, A few verses or chapters earlier in Hebrews 2, it says, For because he himself, that's Jesus, had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How cool is that? How amazing is that? That Jesus not only sympathizes with us, but is actively engaged in helping us because he knows what it is like. God came. And some of you are here, and I think that's exactly what you needed to hear this morning. 
Like we, if we stopped here, that would be okay because I think some of us need to hear this. Our tendency is to want to clean up before we come. And the gospel is completely opposite. Because what the gospel says is that God came to our mess. You see the tension in that? Understanding this changes the way we view our relationship with God because we no longer clean ourselves up to come to him. He stepped down into our mess and came to us, that God came. So number one, because he came, we're given the right to be adopted. Number two, because he came, you've been given sympathy in your, in your weaknesses. And number three, because he came, you are given a mission for your life. Because he came, you are given a mission for your life. About 40 times in John's gospel alone, Jesus says that he was sent by the Father. We get this imagery, and it's a crazy thing to picture that Jesus was a missionary for his Father. In obedience, he went, he came. In most religions, though, the holy men are those who separate themselves, right? They separate themselves from the stench of culture and just being tainted by all of that, and they pull themselves away so that they can become holy and set apart. Jesus didn't do that. I want to be transparent here for a moment that this is my temptation as well. Let me tell you a, a story. There was several years ago, I was, I was talking with a man in my church, and we were, we were talking about the issue of it's easy to be a Christian on the weekends with a bunch of Christian people, but it's hard to know how it plays out every other day. So we were talking, it was kind of a, like a mentor, discipleship conversation, I love this. And pause, if you feel God calling you to teach or preach, just know that there's a good chance that what you're teaching or preaching is going to slap you in the face on its way out. It happens often, and it happened here. Because I realized as I was listening to this man, oh no, I can't speak with integrity on this because I'm failing in this. I looked at my life and I have, um, I went to a Christian church. I actually was on staff at a church. I went to a Christian seminary. I had Christian friends, Christian family. Every conversation that I had in my life that of value was with another Christian. And some of you know, are, can relate to this because it's not that you live in a Christian neighborhood, but all the people you have over from your neighborhood are the Christians, or it's not that you live in this you know, Christian commune, but all of your greatest friendships, without exception, are those who share the faith with us. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Please don't hear me wrong. Christian community is profoundly important. We are desperate for it. We need this. We need our brothers and sisters. We need Christians. Your Christian community is awesome, but your Christian bubble is not awesome. It's not. And Jesus has this way of popping that bubble, and it hurts, and it's uncomfortable sometimes. But Jesus has the right to pop the bubble because he chose to step in. And if we're followers of Jesus, that means we get to follow his lead. Uh, Jesus, all throughout his life, if you look at the Gospels, was, he hung out with believers and, and non-believers alike, the sinners and those who were 
thought they were really awesome. And he was constantly ridiculed for the company he had. Constantly. I would never be ridiculed for the company I share. But he was constantly ridiculed. And not only was Jesus sent, but Jesus is so clear in John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is a a mission statement for us. Just as the Father sent me to step in to this mess, so I'm sending you to step into that mess. That we follow Jesus and we, I can't emphasize this enough, God had every right not to do this. He had every right to not do this, but he chose instead to step in. To step in and he's calling us to do the same. What right do we have as followers of Jesus to see what Jesus did, hear what Jesus said, and say no. What? We don't have that option. It's not an option for us. I came across this quote, and uh, here in a moment I'm going to put it on the screen because I think it is just phenomenal, and it hurts. And so I want to share this with you. It says this, There are only... Three types of people when it comes to mission. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. Church, what type of person are you? What type of person are you? I'm I'm often asked, um, as we prepare to launch Stone Oak Bible Church, I'm often asked if I feel pushy or weird when I ask people to come with us. Uh, It's a big question. I mean, I'm asking them to step into the unknown a little bit, and and I'm asking them to commit to a lot, and here we go. And they want to know, and it's a good question, if I ever feel awkward just making that request and saying, come. My answer is no. It's always no. And here's why. I believe that God has sent me here to do this. And not only that, I believe that God did not send me here to do this solo. And if that's the case, if God has called me and that God is calling others, I've got to ask. I've got to ask because if God is calling others to go, it's for us to step out. And I believe this is the greatest opportunity in the world. Not just specifically Stone Oak Bible Church. The greatest opportunity in the world is to go where God is calling you to go. And so no, I, I never feel pushy when I think through this because I think of the opportunities when God's people will actually follow what Jesus has called us to do. So Jesus came, and it matters deeply because through it we've been given the right to be called his sons and his daughters. Jesus came, and because 
through that you are given sympathy in your times of weakness and need and temptation and you don't serve a God who doesn't know what it's like. And third, it matters so profoundly because we've been given a mission, we've been given a purpose for our lives. God came and it changes everything. I want to close with this today. If you're here in this room and you're struggling intellectually with this, this idea that God came, that God and man, how does that work? Do you really believe in a perfect life and a death and then a resurrection? Intellectually, I'm not following. If you're here and intellectually you're just struggling with this whole idea, or you're here, and it's not so much that you're struggling intellectually. Intellectually, you consent to this, but there is this separation between what you know in your head and what you feel in your heart. And if you were honest, you would have to say, I just don't really care. First of all, I want you to know, this is a safe place. This church is a safe place. Some of you are like, can I really say that or admit that here? Yes, you can. This is a safe place. If that's you, I want to challenge you with something. Uh, first of all, it is okay to wrestle. Just don't be content with wrestling and doing nothing. If you've been wrestling for years and years and years and years and you've done nothing to try to search this out, that needs to stop. But it is okay to wrestle, and I want to give you something that you can take home with. I want to encourage you to read the book of John. Read the book of John. Just pick it up and read it. Now, you're not reading it for anyone else. Read it at your own pace. Don't do it to check a box. Read the book of John. Just read the book of John. You hear me? (laughs) Read the book of John. And here's what I want you to do when you read it. It's not about you checking a box saying you've read it. It's about you knowing what to do with Jesus. You have to do something with him. You have to do something with him. Either you reject him as he was just a lunatic, or he was misleading, and his eyewitnesses were disillusioned and liars, or... You submit to him as Lord and Savior. There's not a third option. And so what I want to challenge you to do is to pick up the book of John and read it. If you don't have a Bible, we would love, we say this often, we'd love to give you one. Please let us know. The question is, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Because God came. He stepped in. Let me pray for us. God, first we are here and we are absolutely humbled by the idea that you would step into this. Our lives are filled with so much chaos sometimes and and, and pain and struggle. And you chose to step in because you loved us, because your heart for the lost, God, give us that heart. 
Show us that because of you, we are given the right to be sons and daughters of you. Because of you, we have a a Savior who cares and sympathizes. And because of you, we've been sent with a purpose and a mission that we get to follow after you. So God, thank you. Thank you for coming. In Jesus' name, amen.